Welcome to the Daniel Wormis Show. It is yours truly coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in. Yesterday, we had a really, really packed show. We had Kefren Fuller calling in from the Netherlands. We had Mickey Turner calling in from Seattle, talking about all things soccer, football around the world. And uh, today we are joined in just a few minutes by Dan Huneman of Minneapolis City SC. And uh, I really, really look forward to having him on. I've, I've been wanting to uh, to speak with him for a while. And uh, part of that is because I think that they do an incredible job with their graphics and their, their media. They just have a really cool vibe and culture that they are creating there with their club. So really look forward to having him on um, later on in the show. Um, so... You know, looking at kind of where we wrapped up yesterday, um, talking with Mickey Turner about the latest lawsuit, it's, um, you know, I I was thinking back to to a year ago, and uh, this time last year, we were were just, you know, a couple months removed from the 2018 presidential election, and um, a a lot of the feeling... uh, within U.S. soccer was a, a feeling of letdown and uh, disappointment that we have. We missed an opportunity to, um, you know, to, to, to really take some major steps forward to, to make some changes with how we do what we do within U.S. soccer. And um, I, I was going back and doing some, some reading and some researching about you know different different aspects of the election, and uh, one of the things that I found was a a Q and A with Carlos Cordero that was published on February sixth, two thousand eighteen. Um, it was an interview with uh, Pro Soccer Talk and uh, NBC with Joe Prince Wright, um, and in this Q and A. Um, Carlos Cordero says at one point in a complex organization, he's referring to U.S. soccer, um, that uh, in a complex organization where there are inherent conflicts of interest, given the nature of the member-based organization, those conflicts have to be managed to the nth degree and no tolerance for anything other than that. When we look at that comment, and, and the acknowledgement that there are conflicts of interest. And then you see yet again another lawsuit mentioning conflicts of interest. When Carlos Cordero took office um, a year ago, and uh, a little over a year ago, and he was promising better transparency. He was promising progress, and he was promising growth. He was promising that he was going to... He, he of all the candidates, he was going to be the best one to manage the federation, to lead the federation. That he had more insight, more experience. Um, that he had a better understanding of all of the issues. His his time in business, his time with the federation, and and yet, if we fast forward from that time last year, this article came out just a few days before the 2018 presidential election and we fast forward to now and we see that the the one lawsuit that was between the NASL and US soccer um, that one lawsuit has now multiplied and you see lawsuits first uh, with Hope Solo then later with the US women's national team You've seen the lawsuit with relevant sports. I mean, they just keep adding up. They keep stacking up. And for someone who promised change and promised to clean these things up and to manage them to the nth degree, I I don't see that more lawsuits claiming 
more conflicts of interest or the same conflicts of interest a year later, I don't see that as progress. And I don't see that as the kind of leadership and change that the Federation needs and that American soccer deserves. It's real easy to say things and it is, it is real easy to, to make the, the claims that, um, you know, that, that, that we're going to move things forward or I, or I'm better positioned to, to manage, you know, um, certain things like conflicts of interest or, um, you know, the Federation at large. But when you look at what you're doing, when we look at what we um, have seen over the last, you know, 12 months plus, uh, it's hard to say there's been progress. It's hard to say that that what the position that U.S. soccer is in, the place that we are in is is in a is in a good place. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I would say that um, you could make the opposite that that the the opposite is true, and um, in in doing that in 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 making that claim. Um, I think there's plenty of evidence to support that, that, you know, the the um, the the place where the Federation is now is is you could I think you could safely say is actually in a worse place than it was over a year ago. And it's unfortunate. Um, It's unfortunate that that's where we are. It's unfortunate that um, that the. The, the Federation, for all of its proclamations, is struggling to connect with the grassroots. It's struggling to serve the grassroots. It's struggling to, to build the grassroots. It, and, and it all stems from the fact that the Federation is not serving all of its members. It, it is beholden with, with the biggest conflict of interest in all of this. It's beholden to Major League Soccer. And it is in business with Major League Soccer through Soccer United Marketing. And the the relationship between the Federation and the relationship uh, with Major League Soccer, all that whole cabal and, and, and assortment of relationships and financial ties, etc., are preventing the Federation from serving all of its members, from doing what needs to be done for everyone. And, and that is why, ultimately, we keep seeing these lawsuits, because the Federation, whether they intend to or not, come across as a federation that serves Major League Soccer first and everyone else afterwards that that they are beholden to what Don Garber and Major League Soccer want over everyone else and when you are the national governing body you are the authority for soccer in this country and you align yourself with a private business Major League Soccer LLC and you do so at the expense of everyone else in terms of decision-making, in terms of authority, in terms of power, and you grant unto that business the ability to be superior, not by merit, but purely by decree, you alienate everyone else. And it may not be your intention. Um, it, it, it is... It is difficult to see the federation serving everyone when that relationship is so strong so just you know wanted to 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 take a quick look back and see where we are uh now compared to to the things that were being said over a year ago and and as we look at that it's obvious that um 
we're we're going nowhere fast, and uh, and the, that has got to change. We have to get better at, at, at in that area, and it, and if in in the the best way to fix all of this, the best way to change all of this, is to to open the system to to be FIFA compliant to do what your bylaws say that you are supposed to do which is to follow all of FIFA's rules unless a US law uh, contrary to what Sunil Gulati proclaimed uh, over a year ago and and what the federation and major league soccer have said for years there is no US law that prohibits pr- promotion and relegation there is no US law that prohibits solidarity payments and training compensation and they have given tons of excuses and in some cases have been complete outright lies. There's there's no laws that, that prohibit U.S. soccer from following FIFA rules. And with the absence of that, due to Bylaw 103, which is U.S. soccer's own bylaw, they have to follow FIFA's rules, they have to follow CONCACAF's rules, and they're not doing it, and there's no U.S. law that prevents them from doing it, then U.S. soccer has all the authority they need to implement the rules, open the system up, and tell everyone, welcome, come in, play, here's the connected system of leagues, and let the let the best club win. You know, sporting merit. We fully embrace it. You guys, meaning clubs, American clubs across the country, you guys do your job you build your club and you take it as high as you can go if, if you can do it great if you can't hey look i'm sorry but if we had a connected system of leagues and everything was won on the field these conflicts of interest where major league soccer is is able to build brand equity is able to build uh, their asset value and, and such is 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 unfair to the rest of the market and and u.s soccer has has done this in a way that is is limiting um the opportunity of every other club so this is this favoritism with major league soccer is at the expense of every other club and that relationship that favoritism is why u.s soccer keeps getting sued and it's not going to stop. It's going to keep coming because people are waking up and um, people are, are realizing the inequity and the unfair relationship and practices between the Federation, the favoritism shown to Major League Soccer, the the preferential treatment of MLS in, in, in all of its um, setups and relationships that things need to change and and so hopefully um the federation will wake up soon and realize that um you know this change needs to happen and needs to happen quickly so that we can can really start to get back to the business that we should be in which is the beautiful game the game of football so um look the the sponsor for today's show is charity water and uh, Charity Water provides clean drinking water to people all over the world. They are literally changing lives and uh, doing an amazing job at it. You can find more information about them at charitywater.org. We'll be... I am to be a pilot. I'm a pilot.
Welcome back to the show. I am really, really excited to have joining us on the show, Dan Hodeman. Dan, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. So um, tell us a little bit about, you know, your your background. How did you get involved with the game, fall in love with the game? It started as a kid. Uh, you know, my... Uh, my dad was actually a member of the one of the first high school teams, uh, high school soccer teams here in Minnesota, um, and uh, you know, so obviously he was rolling the ball out when I was a kid. Um, and I, I found a really good, um, really good team when I was younger. And in fact, one of the one of the guys on the team, and I think we met when we were nine or something. Um, we're still friends, and he was one of the guys, uh, John Bisworm, um, who founded um, our Stegmans men's league club. And then that turned into Minneapolis city and the NPSL. So, um, I mean, it's been, uh, I enjoy the sport, the friendships, and it's kind of stuck with me this whole time. So tell us a little bit about the, um, the, the beginning, the origin story of Minneapolis city SC. Sure. So it, um, it, it goes back to uh, 2010. So um, yeah, my, my buddy, John Bismarck, had, had known when we were kids. Um, he'd been living in, uh, in Milwaukee. Um, we both happened to be in, in advertising, and there was a, a job at my agency. So, you know, via Facebook, um, we were kind of talking about it. He, he applies, gets the job, and we're like, well, this is great. We're here. Um, and uh, you know, he, he's a fantastic player. Um, certainly then, you know, 10 years ago, even better, but, uh, um, you know, I, I was playing on a team here in, in, uh, in our local amateur league and he's like, man, that, that's fine. But I think we'd have more fun if we started our own. So, so we started our own uh, men's league team. And then that gave us a lot of insight, uh, from this kind of interesting, mostly from outside Minnesota soccer perspective on what was going on in in Minnesota soccer. And one of the big dynamics was what was happening with Minnesota Thunder stars United. And particularly as they um, were going through that move to go to MLS, it left open this big gap um, from a, from a playing perspective where back in the day, um, you know, Thunder was overwhelmingly, if not completely local players. And, and there were times in the late nineties, early two thousands where they're arguably uh, the best team in the country. Um, and so though, um, you know, we're, we're, we're a smaller state and though, um, you know, there's sports like hockey that, you know, a lot of people would, um, would play first and take a lot of the, the athlete soccer, you know, does have a big fall in there. There's talent that, that comes out of here that can really play, but, you know, at MLS level and, and with the way that all works uh, and NCAA rules and all that, there really wasn't that opportunity for anybody who wasn't kind of tapped at 16, you know, to, uh, immediately move into the most elite levels. And so there are a lot of guys who, you know, if they're going to go away to, you know, division one school or, um, you know, and, and there aren't any in Minnesota, so you had to go away. They, they weren't coming home for their entire college career. They had to play elsewhere. There wasn't a high level enough place for those guys to play. Well, we wanted to solve that. Didn't, didn't seem right. 
Um, and at the same time, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia for those Thunder days. You know, it was you know, this fun ramshackle, really community um, feel that you, you just can't scale that. You know, you, you can't have that at 22,000 people and, um, you know, all this money pumping into it. it. It had to be a little bit more raw. And we call it DIY. We wanted to build it ourselves. You know, we wanted to feel like um, it was kind of harking back to that. So there was, there was a gap that we wanted to fill and we figured um, because we knew just enough to not know that we, we knew enough. We figured we had enough skills to do it with, with segments. We knew how to recruit players. We knew how to field the team. We knew what it cost to travel and how to put out um, competitive teams all the time. Um, so we went for it. <laughs> and then that's how it all started. So how long, uh, how long have you guys been, been going as Minneapolis city SC? We are going into our fourth season. Fourth season. So looking at where you are now and, and all that you guys are doing, what, what, are you, what are your dreams? What are your goals? What, what do you dream about at night when you're thinking, hey, what, what can we build this into? What, what are you thinking long term? I mean, I, so and people in the club will know this. I had a dream like a week or two ago. Um, about this mock Tudor stadium in this in the little area we've been we've been uh, playing at our men's league for about ten years. So that's <laughs> that is my literal dream. It's beautiful little non-league ground. Um, but I get asked that question pretty regularly, and and part of the challenge in answering it is so much of it depends on what the what the U.S. soccer landscape looks like, and it's impossible to tell what that's going to be. Um, and there, there's so many groups that are moving in ways that could fundamentally change how we have to approach things, like with what the NCAA is doing in, in a, you know, potentially a challenging way, um, or with what's happening with NPSL and Founders Cup in, in potentially a really good way. And I think for us, we found a really good spot to be in. It was based on that, that initial mission, right? We really wanted to be this community club. And what we want to do is we want to be that, that conduit for you know, some of the, the top players that are coming out of Minnesota, not the, not the super elite, you know, who are, you know, they're, they're going to Europe or, or they're going immediately into that. You're um, going to play MLS track. We've had a, we've, we've had a few of those guys like Nicole Kale at, at Villarreal. He just sort of, you know, <laughs> you sort of leave, leave high school and you just go play. Those guys aren't really for us, but there's this, this other um, level that we think we can really serve. And as we start to experience, you know, I'd like to expand our club. So we fill the, the complete post youth club gap, you know, from at late teens, 18, 19, uh, kind of through to where we are now and whatever that could be. Uh, like I said, I think Founders Cup is really interesting um, in what they're doing. We're going to keep a close eye on that. Um, you know, but we're also pretty, pretty comfortable staying at this um, kind of high amateur level too. It just depends on what the landscape's going to be. And, you know, we, I can't even see what that's going to look like next year, let alone five, ten years um, for us to plan for. So I, I don't mean to make it kind of a non-answer, but, you know, there's a level of club expansion. There's, there's certainly looking at a place we can call home. Um, and then we'll we'll see what that means for leagues and level and all that. So the the club is like so many clubs around the country trying to figure out um, – what the path forward is for the club. Um, and I can't tell you the, the, the number of times I have this conversation with people and it's like, well, you know, I mean, we, we would like to look at this or this, but like, we don't even really know what, what tomorrow looks like in terms of, of a path or, or a system or, a uh, et cetera. So, um, it's interesting that you bring that up when asked about, you know, what, what does the future look like? Cause it's hard to predict. I, I think that you are, you're, you're spot on. If, if you know what American soccer looks like a year from now, um, I would say go to Vegas and, and play the odds because you're, you might be the only one to know. Um, there, there's a lot of, of upheaval and a lot of, um, things going on. Obviously, the, some some recent uh, legal challenges, even this week, between relevant sports and and the federation, yet another lawsuit. Um, and and you did mention that you know you have the Founders Cup, a uh, group of teams that are 
basically trying to trying a grand experiment and in building a, a new league in a new way, trying a different competition, trying to to push the boundaries and 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 I would say trying to innovate in some ways within the the American soccer uh, infrastructure as it currently stands. Um, when when you look at where you guys are now and in the kind of players that you have access to and in the for going into your fourth year here in terms of of play um what have you learned getting started until now like what what have you when you started this you you thought you were going to be x but now three years plus into this process and this journey, what have you learned about, you know, the, the process itself, maybe that, that you thought was going to be different in the beginning? I mean, that, that's a great question. And there are a lot of different angles to think about it. Um, you know, and when we, when we were setting up our club, we had a lot of great conversations with, um, with other uh, owners, primarily NPSL owners, um, you know, but um, you know, we, we knew that we didn't we knew we didn't know enough to be successful, and so we really kind of picked their brains. And there are a couple of pieces of advice that that really um, that really helped that I, I didn't maybe fully understand when uh, it was given to me. And one of them was given to me by Sean Mann at Detroit City, who said, you know, one of the things he learned was, you know, being really particular about kind of separating the playing side from what would happen in kind of the, the business side, and. Um, and I didn't know necessarily why he meant that, but that was that was the thing we did. We really tried to set it up, and so I've been, been really focused on making uh, the clubs a business work. And then, um, and from the founders group, then we had uh, John Bism really focused on the playing side. And since then, as we've grown, you know, there's a bunch of people involved. But I think that's really paid out because um, we we agree at the principal level what we're trying to do, like what our what our rules of the road are going to be. And we have this saying that, you know, it's not a value unless you have to, unless it costs you something, right? So, and that's, that's cost us on the playing side where we've said, we've said no to players who aren't from or don't have any connection in Minnesota. And we've seen them go to conference rivals, but um, what it taught me from the, from the business side is this, this really critical truth that I think all too often gets overlooked, which is you can have all the great ideas you want to do in the playing side or the community side or any of these other sides. But if you're out of business, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And I get the, uh, I get to have the, the fun of really minding uh, the dollars and cents. And sometimes it feels, uh, you know, it doesn't feel right because we are kind of animated with this idea of, of having a mission, but we've got to make, we've really got to make the sums work. And, uh, you know, there, so, that separation has been a, been a really good thing because you really do need to focus. And I mean, I could see if I was rich, like Mark Cuban, I would definitely be doing what he's doing with the Mavericks because even at our little level, you know, like you want, you want all the guys to have the best stuff and you know, you want, you want them to, to be completely prepared and you're willing to, to do anything to make that work. And then certainly stuff on the, the community side, you know, you really want to get involved. And the next thing you know, um, since I'm not Mark Cuban, you know, you're out of money and then you don't come back. And we've seen so many clubs do that. So um, I, I kind of maybe took that in a slightly different place, but just the thing I learned more than anything is having somebody whose sole job is making the dollars and cents work and who's able to really think about and have the kind of tough conversations and what are the trade-offs and what's that growth trajectory. And the great thing about the club that we had was, and we, we have a vision that everyone agreed on and a place we want to get to. Um, and we're willing to accept that it's going to take steps to get there. Um, you know, because when we started our first year, we weren't in the NPSL yet. We're in the Premier League of America. Um, I mean, I think we, we spent maybe $30,000 on everything. Um, and our, our stated goal was, you know, we wanted to, uh, we wanted to spend like Target, but feel like Neiman Marcus. We didn't quite, quite achieve the Neiman Marcus thing, but, you know, at least we probably sell like target, you know, now we're, we're more than three times that um, as we go into our fourth season and, and, and what we're spending to support the, the players and some of the activities we're going to do. And it's, it's always been, uh, been sustainable. Um, and at, during that time, you know, we've seen clubs come and go and some, some come and go very, very quickly. 
um, or some take the route where they go to, you know, like the UPSL because it's cheap. They don't quite have the infrastructure to really, um, really do it right. You know, and I think that's the thing that takes an, an enormous amount of effort and kind of learned with that focus on the business side is there's an absolute right and an absolute the wrong way to do it. Um, and I, I love men's league. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to ding men's league. They're great men's leagues everywhere. I've played it forever. I still try and play it. It's awesome. Um, but men's league's different, right? Um, and, and purposely different. And so we really try to benchmark ourselves against some of the clubs that are, are really doing a great job, you know, for their players. Um, so we wanted to get to a point where college coaches were looking at us like um, a PDL team, just in terms of their comfort in, releasing their players to play with us and then so some of our older guys not in college would be the same thing they could you know they, they could continue to play and um you know do it at do it at a higher level like that takes that focus and when sean Mann told me that the first time i didn't really quite understand it um and it took a lot of willpower to turn away from the playing side which is you know, super fun uh, but i think it's really paid off because it's allowed us to build a build something towards a vision not to be really sustainable um and a lot of us do a really great job uh, for our players and, and um, you know, help, help them like within college or get to the next level because they're, they're set up in a way that we maybe couldn't have if we all just dove in to like have fun on the playing side. So I think that's such a, a key component of lower league club soccer. Um, if you look at, at, the amount of clubs we have in this country, it's over 9,000 clubs. When you look at the, the clubs that are doing things right, that number gets small really fast. And by right, I don't just mean like um, they're playing it in a professional league or whatever. I, I mean like doing things right in terms of their communications, the you know managing their numbers, um, being sustainable, uh, building a true club culture, etc. All of these components that going into to building a quality club. Um, and so those clubs kind of become unicorns. They become anomalies within the system because there are so many that are ju- that, that ju- just don't understand really the business they're in on the business side of the ledger. So I think it's so important and and I find it fascinating that that that's where you you go in terms of when asked what would you what did you learn um, it, because it is such an important uh, thing it, it's real easy to get caught up in in the sporting side and and the players you put on the field and you know the competition and and all of that and and, and we see that in professional leagues around the world you'll see wealthy owners come in and they're splashing cash everywhere and and they they just want to win and they want to do and but they don't actually really manage the money to 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 be uh in line with their sporting ambitions in in in, in a proper way that that ultimately becomes either sustainable or unsustainable for for the club um, when, when you guys were, were dreaming up Minneapolis city SC, um, where, where did the amazing, and this is something that, that I, um, love about your, your club is your design graphics, logos, all of that. Just, I, I love that stuff. So, um, where where did that inspiration come from to kind of go with the the kind of look and feel of of the brand of the club? Yeah, so um, so jo- you know John and I, uh, two of the founders, uh, made our careers in advertising, and, and at the time when we started, we worked, we worked at the same ad agency, and um, you know, so we grabbed uh, a designer who we worked with, who's, who's done a lot of really great illustrators and has done a lot of really really just fantastic and interesting stuff. And we, we I gave him a brief and asked if he'd help us out with a, with a logo. And after he was, was kind of talking to us, we, we told him what we we're trying to do. And, and he thought a little bit about it. Um, you know, he came back with, with this interesting brand with, you know, the stark black and white. And, and his idea was, was the, the hot pink. And, um, you know, be, because of this feeling of um, being a little bit, being a little bit renegade and, and being a little bit like we're going to not, not just going to do our own thing. So we're going to kind of unapologetically 
um, bust on the doors and, um, you know, be a little bit like the Kool-Aid man, just, you know, we're here. Um, and we don't give a shit if you don't like it. But uh, so a lot of it came from him, a guy named, a guy named Trent Edwards, uh, who really, really kickstarted it. And, um, and so that, that's why that, that kind of core stuff happened. Um, and we worked on it together. So I'm, I'm pretty proud that the grumpy cat thing, we launched, launched the logo. That was my idea. I did that on a Twitter graphic and I kept laughing and I sent it to Trent and John and they didn't know why. I mean, I was like giggling like a little child, but I thought it was so funny and uh, they didn't think it was that funny, but, um, I did it anyway because I couldn't help myself. And luckily other people at least thought it was somewhat funny. Um, you know, but with us, one of the things we'd done when we had set it up was, you know, we'd said pretty clearly what we are and what we aren't. And that's where that, that idea of kind of uncorporate came from. And because we're looking around, there's, there's just so much corporate sports, particularly here in the Twin Cities. You know, we've got a billion-dollar new football stadium. And, and it's, it's a great stadium, but it, it has interesting things, right? Like it has this huge dead zone near the field where it's all these big corporate boxes. And... Um, my, my wife's company sponsors one of them and I, I, I went into it and it's like nicer than my house. You know, you got these, these people serving you food all the time. And most of the people are, are in the back just chatting when there's a game going on. I thought, why am I here? I, I could do that at home. Um, it, it would not be as nice as the box, but I, I could. And, and that's not the, I mean, at that point, what are we doing? We may as well be watching video games. Um, and so, you know, we, we did stuff like that. So, okay, if that's true, if Uncorporate is going to be a thing we want to do, well, what do we have to look like? Um, and we did keep in mind that, you know, here in town too, we had Minnesota United who have a very nice logo, you know, and they've done a, they had historically done a really nice job of, you know, their own graphic design to be, you know, um, very refined and, and really sharp and kind of traditional soccer with a twist. You know, they, they did, they did nice work. So we couldn't, we couldn't do that. We had to, we had to do our own spin on it. Um, and I am pleased to see that a lot of our, a lot of our things, um, from, like the graphic language they've they've taken and even in their scarves up stuff with the kind of black um blocks of color and, and light type over it you know they've taken that this year it's good it's a good look and um you know so I'm, I'm pleased that that's happened but it really just came from hey if we're on corporate how do we need to feel and if we're trying to do something different and like bust in there what's it what's it got to be it, you know it's got to have some friction so um and then from there it's just a just a group effort, but um, I could I could geek out about that for the rest of the show. It's it's been really fun to do. Well, as someone who um, works in creative and production and and, and all of that, um, I've I've been a big admirer of the work that you guys have done in that area, um, and and have really enjoyed watching the the um, the different product lines and and uh, you know the logo itself I, I just think it's it is it is to me it is one of the the best um, soccer logos uh, of the modern age and um, and the reason for that is because I think you guys really tapped into something that um, is is fresh it is clean it is different it's not a um a ripoff of you know a classic badge so often you, you start a soccer club and you go to the clip art and you find okay hey do we want our badge to look like you know the the barcelona crest outline do we want it to look like this outline or and and then you kind of just throw some colors in there and your name and 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 here's your clip art logo. You guys really spent time. You can tell spending time creating an identity, creating a brand, creating a look that is um, you know synonymous with your club. And when 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 people see it, it to me it, it it's it's instantly recognizable. So you guys nailed it uh, in my book and and. Uh, and I, I think, I think, like I said, it's, it's really, really, really great what, what you guys have done in that area. When, when you look at the landscape of soccer in Minnesota, um, obviously you guys, uh, don't have 90 degree weather during the winter. Um, and it does get cold. Um, and, and I think you even get some snow occasionally. Um, what, what, what is, what is the, the, um, environment like for soccer in Minnesota in terms of the sport itself? Well, I mean, I, I think it's, 
I think it's growing and, um, you know, it's interesting because, um, there was this great sort of golden age when you had players like Tony Sana uh, coming out and, um, you know, obviously going playing in the, in the world cup and, um, you know, and it sort of seems like every other generation there, there's some really great talents that, uh, that, that come out of here and, and, um, you know, but it's, it's not a, it's not a big, uh, big state, like I said. So, um, you know, percentage wise, a lot of talents, I guess. Um, but you know, what we're seeing is, um, because we've got to play, play indoors and the domes pretty much just came down a couple of weeks ago. So you're indoors from uh, November to April. Um, and that makes it somewhat difficult to, uh, um, really make the sport super accessible because there aren't, aren't that many domes and they get kind of expensive. And so a lot of times you, you practice on smaller spaces. And so Minnesota players tend to be, um, you know, pretty, pretty technical and tidy, but, um, you know, you, you struggle sometimes when you go, go fuller field. Um, and, and certainly, you know, there are, you know, hockey or, or basketball or some of these sports where the more traditional winter indoor sports are, are huge here. Um, but like I said, you know, I do think soccer is growing. And I think that you know, Minnesota United are pouring a ton of money into um, raising awareness of the sport. And, um, you know, we've got some good, uh, good youth clubs that, um, you know, doing everything, everything they can to, you know, keep and retain players. And we have a really thriving lower division scene. So in, in a lot of ways, it's a golden age for the sport right now. And my hope is that, you know, particularly as you see where clubs like ours can fit and, and in a lot of ways be a realistic goal for these players that the retention of the players through that, you know, like 11 to 13 age group where so many will leave, um, and where it, it stops being fun when it's 20 below zero to, you know, you know, drive 40 minutes to get to a dome and, and have to, to play indoors at 9 PM, um, that, that will start to have some of that, uh, that staying power. Um, but I, you know, I'm not sure that it'll ever be, uh, you know, the same as, you know, playing in Southern California, um, because there, there is power to just being able to kind of roll the ball out in your backyard and play, um, and, and that's the thing that, that we miss a lot of the times. And it, it goes both ways. You don't get quite the same um, free play in great environments, but the players who do really want to do it, they've really got to really work and fight for opportunities. They're playing in gyms. You know, some of them are playing in domes, playing in their basement or whatever. So, um, you know, the, a lot of the, the guys who are coming through that we see, you know, coming into our team, they're really committed to the sport. They really like it. Um, and they've done a lot. Uh, and you know, done a lot of crazy things to make sure that they still play it. So um, I I have hope for it, but um, yeah, wouldn't it be nice if it was 72 and sunny all winter long? We'd see a lot more soccer players, I'm sure. I think one of the the fascinating pieces of of looking at American soccer at large that you you were kind of touching on there in your answer is we really as as a single country have environments that mirror kind of all aspects of Europe. So geographically, we're a large country. Um, we're, we're roughly around the same size as, as Europe, the continent. And, um, and in that setup in Europe, you, you have like your Scandinavian countries in, in Norway, Denmark, Sweden, etc., that are, you know, dealing with, with, weather conditions similar to what you guys deal with. And then you, you go into other places in Europe, Portugal it would feel a lot more like Southern California. Um, and yet what we've seen in, in Europe is, you know, these cultures have fig- started to try to figure out um, how to make what, what works for them in their context. And, um, one of the things I wanted to, to, to talk with you about was, was the calendar um, because weather does play a big part in the ability to execute a calendar. And oftentimes when we look at uh, the calendar of play, um, very often the, the argument that, that is used is, well, in, in, 
America, there's no way to run fall to spring calendars because of the, of the weather issues. And yet the in, in Europe, the Scandinavian countries have figured out how to make it work uh, by starting their leagues generally, you know, in – um, you know, first of July and then run and then take a long extended winter break and then coming back and finishing up. So even though the, the, the largest break is in the middle of the season, um, they, they still run on that fall to spring calendar. And then that kind of sets them up for, you know, any kind of Europa or champions league qualifications, etc. Um, do you see challenges in being able to, to do that same kind of calendar setup here in the U S I do. Um, and I, I think there, are, there are really two reasons for it. Um, and, and I think the first one, and that's often overlooked is we do have to think about the fan experience. Um, so, you know, it, I mean, it can get, you can get brutally, brutally cold here. We're further north than uh, than Toronto, and that you just—it's not good for players, and it's certainly not good for fans. You're not gonna—you're not gonna draw a game when it's ten below zero, you know. And, um, and there's a reason that our NFL team plays indoors. And yes, I mean, I—I I, I get the Green Bay Packers thing, but like that's one team with, you know, a historic uh, record of winning all these titles, and the and the only thing in town. Like, okay, yeah, they're always outliers, but. You know, we're trying to build a sport and we really need to create a scenario where there's a lot of fan support for it. I think from the flip side, you could look at places like Houston, right, who would really struggle to draw in, in the dog days of August. So I, mean, I get that too, but I do think we have to be thoughtful of um, the fan experience so that we, we can create um, create a league or create a schedule that's going to work so that it can be really enjoyable to have a, a nice day out. Um, you know, and, and we have to think about and in our case up here, player safety. Um, you know, but from the other perspective, you, you really brought up a, a good one is, you know, when you look at just how different the climates really are, I mean, we're, we're more akin to the Northern reaches of, of Russia um, in, in terms of how cold it can get. And yet at the same time, um, you know, well, our summers are, they're hot. They're nineties, hot it's a, it's a huge swing so we, we have these weather challenges that um that europe doesn't have and so i think in some ways you know like with with minnesota united starting on the road the way that they have and there are things that leagues like mls can do you know but when you ask when you ask somebody at npsl level like with me can we start earlier well i mean today it's 72 and sunny but then on saturday we're, we have a preseason match against harpo's we're flying in from Colorado and it's going to be maybe a high of 44 and there's a 50% chance of snow. And this time last year, you know, we still had feet of snow on the ground. So there's, there's so much variation and, and I don't have, or our, you know, my club doesn't have the ability to dome a stadium or, or, you know, do anything like that. So you start to get into these questions as you go lower down, what hopefully becomes a fully aligned pyramid of, how, you know, how can you reasonably make that work? And I think there are really important questions for that. To me, the, the answer is we have to we have to regionalize, and we may have to regionalize thinking about it on on weather grounds. So maybe at, at the at the top division nationally, um, we can try and find more ways to to align with uh, the international calendar, and you know, with with things like big breaks or starting on the road, or you know, there's schedule maybe some scheduling magic that you can do. Um, but then we just regionalize as we go further down um, because, you know, here in, here in Minnesota, starting that first week of, of May, I mean, we, we spend a lot of May with freezing rain or, or pretty cold uh, games. That, that hits our attendance. If we could play all our games in July and August when it's just gorgeous, I mean, we absolutely, absolutely would. That may not, like I said, that may not be the same for our friends in Texas who might want to do it the other way around. If it starts to be, regionalized within some range, you know, I, I think that could work. Cause again, you, you know, Europe's a great example. Russia and, and the Scandinavian countries aren't playing on the same calendar that the more, uh, the more temperate leagues are playing. And certainly once you get into, um, you know, Africa, or the middle East, you know, they're, they're doing different things too. And I, I think just because we're in 
you know, one nation doesn't mean that we can't think about our leagues in a way that allows it to grow the game in the best possible way. And again, like I'll finish it with, you know, I hit such a big part of it on fan experience and stuff because as Minneapolis city, so much of my focus is, you know, we got to, we got to stay in business and we stay in business. If people love coming to our games and they think it's super fun, we don't stay in business. If we play half of our season when it's, you know, 10 degrees or 40 degrees in freezing rain, it just doesn't work for us. Completely makes sense. Um, you know, if you are in new Orleans in, in July and August, uh, you don't want to wear clothes outside, much less uh, sit outside for hours uh, in 150% humidity, it feels like. Um, and, and so totally understand the, the concerns of, of weather. That I, and I completely agree with you in, in your take on regionalization and, and scheduling. I, I, and that, that was really kind of my point, is that when, when you get... The further down you get, the more local you get, the more, to me, the calendar needs to reflect the context in which you're playing. So, um, you know, I've been in, in Minnesota in, in the summer and perfect weather to play soccer. Go to the south in the summer, not perfect weather to play soccer. Um, and so, you know, there there needs to be some some work in figuring out, especially it, as we try to move uh, our clubs and our leagues into alignment and into um, a, a connected system of leagues, we, we've got to figure out some ways and it's going to, it's going to take, you know, some, some understanding. It may be a little compromise and it may be um, a little bit of creativity to figure out, how to to make these these projects work in different places in the country and and you're right ba- basing these leagues uh, on in, environmental um, aspects is is the smartest way to go about doing this because weather is going to be the largest influence on the the attendance uh, across a league and, and and so if if you are in Minneapolis in in March or February, um, you know it. There, there's a very good chance that um, you know it's not going to be an enjoyable experience. Versus you know May, June, July, August kind of kind of uh, scenario. So, I think I think as a as a federation, and as a a system of leagues, as these clubs and leagues start to to say, okay, hey, how do we connect? How do we figure this thing out? I think there's going to have to be that kind of you know uh, grand conversation on a macro level to understand on the micro level that certain certain elements are going to have to be adjusted to figure out how um, how how these things can work in in the best possible ways uh, for a club like yours in the north versus a club in, in the, in the, you know, heat of, of Texas in the, in the middle of the summer. So, um, you know, I, th- I, I think the, the, the point that you bring up there is, is critical to, to remember, um, a, in terms of, of thinking through this in a, in a global sense, um, for the American game. What, when you look at American soccer at large, um, and just kind of the the whole enchilada, the whole system, the whole um, macro level experience. If if you had one thing that you could do to make it better, what would it be? Hmm. Hmm. Just one thing. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think for me, I would change the governance. I think I would, I'd, I'd tear it up and I'd start fresh because I, I think what we've found is, um, you know, it's clear. And I think this is true at every, every level. I'm not, I'm not just attacking the MLS, some um, relationship that continues to face lawsuits, but I, I think across the board. What we, what we have is we've got a bunch of fiefdoms and we have people who've been in these roles 
um, where there is it a state association, is it a league, you know, whatever. They've been in it a long time, and their incentives are are um, are to continue that, right? Nobody today, looking at soccer today, would create what we have. It's grown up, and um, because the incentives are there, that's that's the way it's going to stay. Because those people who are there are going to you know protect in many cases their livelihood. And I can certainly understand that. The problem is if you have people want to make their lives in soccer who then can't really rock the boat um, because you know they, they need to get a job or you know they, they need to at least not um, uh, have people never hire them right so we I found this dynamic at the governance levels um, at, at all levels where there's just entrenched entrenched interest and it's interesting for us you know because like I said you know John and I started a team out of the blue and I was I was born in Minnesota I moved around a lot for my dad's job so um, you know, it feels like home. I'm, I'm culturally Minnesotan, but um, you know, I, I did junior high and high school in California. I lived in Ohio, I lived in Georgia. I lived, lived in all these different places as a kid, and um, so I, I wasn't in that entrenched fit area. And I haven't made my career in soccer, so um, it, it has less of a pull on me. Oh no, no one will ever hire me as a coach. Like I don't want to be a coach. <laughs> you know, um, actually, I do. I just know I'd be bad at it. So you know, I, I've given that up. And I think you need that, right? I think that has to be broken through because I think you can trace so many of the, the issues with entrenched interests in government, entrenched small groups in, in uh, the sports governance. And what we see here in Minnesota too, even at the, the youth level is you, know, you can't get anything done with the existing group. So they started like a new youth organization. So now we've got two youth organizations in this state. <laughs> Why are we doing that? Um, and you see with, with stuff like the Founders Cup, oh, we, we can't have, you know, any sort of reasonable accommodation for rules. Or we, we can't get any sort of reasonable PLS or sanctioning thing. Well, we have to start our own thing. It's, it's the only way. That's ridiculous. And that's a governance issue. So if I only had one silver bullet, I would, I would aim it at governance. Well, I think that you, your silver bullet is the answer. Um, it is. In, in my experience uh, in, in, in running Eric Winalda's campaign last year when he ran for president and working with our team and kind of talking with other candidates and their teams as well, um, learning the, the behind the scenes, and I had for years felt like, you know, there were, there were some governance and transparency issues and, and et cetera, et cetera. But when you get into the belly of the beast and you really start to – have these conversations and watch and observe what takes place and you know realize that everything that is going wrong is directly uh attributable to the governance your answer i mean you know if this was uh if this was jeopardy you, you just got your daily double um you you nailed it and that that is the key nothing nothing really changes it, it, one of the things that I, I i have looked at with some of the legal challenges is if some of these are successful and and the challenges to the federation result in some changes my one concern is what are we doing now to prepare for the uncertainty that results in these changes, meaning it, it's one thing to come in and say, okay, U.S. soccer, you're not managed, you're not governed properly, you, you, you're, you're overly conflicted, this relationship has to change or this can't be done, whatever, but then you have a vacuum. And, and what fills that void? What fills that vacuum? What comes next? That's the piece to me that interests me the most because if we want to see the, the governance change and we want to see the, the sport be managed properly rather than fiefdoms, rather than, than you know, the, the um, protected setup that is, is in place now with a, basically a system of gatekeepers and, 
you know, you have to be, you have to be on your best behavior with this person in order to get access to this, this, or this, or to get funds from here, or to get an opportunity to get a seat at the table, et cetera, rather than empowering, as, as I see it, the clubs should have the voice in the Federation that they're the ones who are on the front lines every day. Um, and, and running a club, they're the ones who, who to me should be, the the major influence in the direction of the, of the federation it, without having something uh there when change needs to happen i'm i'm also a little worried that governance goes uh you know wrong or goes sideways again um if some of these lawsuits are are won um it, it's it's interesting that you you bring that up. I, I hear that story repeated. The youth associations, the dysfunction, all across the country, and um, and and yet you know we're we are a year in, and I actually started the show reading a quote from Carlos Cordero and how he was going to manage conflicts of interest to the nth degree, and we're we're a year plus into his tenure, and we've got more lawsuits and and and. I would argue more things going wrong than getting better. So, look, Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for um, for joining us. I definitely would uh, would love to have you on again, uh, especially um, maybe here in a few months, whenever you guys are up and and, and running and, and playing in the in the middle of the season and uh, hopefully the heat of the summer for you guys. Yeah, no, that would be great. I'd, I'd love to and. Uh... Yeah, hopefully this weather here uh, turns after the weekend. You, you never know, but um, I'm hopeful, just like with, with U.S. soccer, right? You never know when it's going to turn, but I'm hopeful because at least with the lawsuits and the conversations, there's attention on it. You know, and, and a few years ago, there there was a, just the beginnings of rumblings on Twitter. So it, it, it all starts with uh, with public discontent, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I agree with you. I'm hopeful as well. Thanks for joining the show. Uh, thanks for coming on. We, we look forward to having you on again soon. All right. Thanks. That was Dan Hoodman of Minneapolis City SC. Um, he and, and the guys up there, if you're not following them and you have any aspirations to work or be in a club, you should see what they do. Um, their communications, their marketing, their graphics are top notch, and um, and and their their insight as they're 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 still you know in in early stages you know going into fourth year um, is is invaluable to kind of pick their brain and, and reach out to them, connect to them. Uh, with them and kind of learn what's going on. So anyway, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for uh, for tuning in every day. We will be back again tomorrow with Sky Eddie Bruce. Uh, look forward to having her on. So stay tuned. We'll see you tomorrow.